Well, all right. If you have a Bible with you or some kind of device with a Bible app, grab those things and let's go to Mark chapter 9 together. Mark chapter 9. If you have the Crosspoint app on your phone or tablet, you can also follow along with the message notes on the app if you want to do that. But Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be, okay? Uh, as you're getting there, question. How many of you are movie preview lovers? Just let me see your hand real quick. Okay, I have to confess, I am with you. Uh, whenever I go to the movies, I always get there super early, both to find a good seat and to see the previews. And the reason is really simple. Uh, as a guy highly intrigued by the future, I don't want to miss out on seeing what the movie future holds. Because in seeing it, I can better prepare myself for what's to come. And I'll give you an example of what I mean, all right? I remember several years ago seeing for the first time the movie trailer for The Dark Knight. Do you guys know this movie, 1130? Okay, awesome. If you don't, you need to leave here today immediately. And you need to buy it or you need to borrow it. And you should watch it and then come back next Sunday and thank me for the great joy it brought into your life, all right? But incredible. In my opinion, hands down, one of the best and maybe the best Batman movie of all time. Absolutely a phenomenal movie. But, but I remember, again, seeing the trailer for the first time. And in the first minute of the trailer, all you really see are flashes of Christian Bale as Batman. But at the same time, you're hearing the voice and the laugh of Heath Ledger, who played Joker, and then at about a minute in, you finally see his face, the face of this painted-up, disheveled madman. Well, it was at that point that I decided, regardless of what's happening on July 18th, 2008, I will be seeing that movie. Right? I'll buy my tickets early. I'll go alone if I have to. If I need to cancel stuff, stuff is getting canceled because there's no way I'm missing out on what I just previewed. And, and hear me, that's what previews are meant to do, Right? They're meant to create in us this great anticipation of what the future holds so that we can better prepare ourselves for that future. And that's the reality we're going to see playing out in our passage for today. You see, three of Jesus' disciples get a preview. They, they preview something Jesus predicted back in Mark 8.38. And if you were here last Sunday, you might remember this, right? In that verse, Jesus speaks of his second coming. That day when the clouds will part and he will return to earth, as he says, in the glory of his father with the holy angels. That's what these three men got a preview of. Jesus' future glory. And through that preview, great anticipation was created in them for that future reality. But at the same time, it prepared them to face all the hardships and trials they would encounter in this life as they waited on that future to become reality. And so what we're going to do is just spend some time together really describing their preview in detail. And I need you to know today, there's a lot to describe, all right? We're going to be in our passage for a lot of the message. Uh, but after describing it, we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about what it means for us, all right? 1130, y'all awake out there? Y'all watch too much football? Y'all stay up for the fight last night? All right, let me know you're alive. You, you, you say amen, you talk back. Let me know you're out there, all right? Here we go. Mark 9, let's start in verse 1. Here's what he says. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. 
And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Uh, Really interesting statement, almost comical. We'll come back to it. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So we'll stop there and talk. So much to unpack and talk about, okay? Uh, Mark begins, and he lets us know that in the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus is still addressing the same group of people he was addressing in chapter 8. And if you've been here lately, you know that a lot happened in chapter 8. The disciples finally confessed Jesus to be the Christ. Jesus, for the first time in the book of Mark, goes on to predict his death and resurrection. And then uh, around the end of the chapter, he calls his disciples and this crowd of people to him, and he explains to them that following him would be very, very costly at times. Yet, the cost of not following him, according to Jesus, would be far greater than the cost of following. And then he offers some very interesting parting words that Mark captures for us in verse 1. Jesus looks at this group of people, and he says, hey, uh, I need you to know that some of you who are standing here with me right now will see the kingdom of God come in power before you taste and experience death. Now, you should know that scholars and theologians have long disagreed on what Jesus meant by uh, what he said there. Some of them believe that he was actually speaking about his resurrection from the dead. Uh, Others propose that he was referencing the time when the Holy Spirit would come at Pentecost. Heaven would invade earth in a unique, never-before-seen way. And then others actually propose that Jesus was speaking here of his second return to earth, which is absolutely impossible because Jesus hasn't returned yet, and all these people in Mark chapter 9 are clearly dead and gone, right? Uh, The most widely held view and the view that makes most sense when you uh, consider the context of what we're reading is this, that Jesus was referencing there the very event that takes place in verses 2 through 8, this event known as the transfiguration. Here's what happened. Mark says that six days after Jesus made that statement in verse 1, that he took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to this high mountain. And no one really knows what mountain it was. Uh, It really depends on where Jesus was by this time. But the reality is it doesn't matter what mountain it was. It's not significant. The thing that's significant is the fact that they went to this high mountain. You see, in the Old Testament, mountains were places of divine revelation. They were places where God would give people previews of his glory. And two of the clearest examples of that are found in the lives of the men that we just saw in Mark chapter 9, Moses and Elijah. Uh, If you're new to church or new to Bible reading, I'll just kind of hit the cliff note version of their story real quick. But in Exodus chapter 19, Moses is that prophet who goes up to Mount Sinai and he receives the law and the Ten Commandments from God. And as he's on that mountain, he's talking with God, and the very glory of God descends and passes before him. We're also told in Exodus 34 that as a result of his meeting with God, when he came off the mountain, his face was literally shining with God's glory. And it was so bright, apparently, that the brother had to wear a veil because the people of Israel were terrified to come near him. Now, in Exodus 19, the story of Elijah is similar in certain ways. Uh, There you find the story of, again, this great prophet running for his very life. There was this crazy woman who was after him. Her name was Jezebel, which, by the way, if you're looking for a baby name, don't use that one. Jezebel is not what you want to name your daughters. Crazy woman, queen in Israel at the time. So this was a big deal, right? 
And so Elijah retreats to this place called Horeb, which is also known as the Mount of God, which is also known as Mount Sinai, which is really cool. So he shows up there and he's battling in this moment with anxiety, with depression, with fear. He's literally wishing his life would just come to an end. And in the midst of his despair, God shows up. And he says, Elijah, I want you to pick yourself up and I want you to go stand on the mountain before me. And so he does. And God passes by and he reveals himself to Elijah in this amazing way, not through the earthquake that occurs or the wind that comes or the fire that takes place, but through a quiet, gentle whisper, which I personally find absolutely incredible. That God in his grace and goodness would meet this broken, suffering man in the exact manner that he needed, at the exact time he needed it to reveal himself in a special way so that Elijah could once again see him clearly and break free from his spiritual struggles. You see, here's the truth. God still does the same for us today, amen? And it's exactly what Jesus did for his disciples here in Mark chapter 9. He put his glory on display in an unprecedented way. And why? Because he knew it was exactly what these three men needed. They needed to see his glory in a way that they had never seen it before. Because as he went to the cross, they were going to face some things they could never fully prepare for. And so to help prepare them, Mark tells us that Jesus was transfigured before them in this moment. Uh, That word transfigured, if you take notes and want to write this down, this is something unique. So uh, the word transfigured comes from the Greek word metamorpho. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. And it literally means to change into another form. And so for all you people that stayed up late last night watching fights and football, uh, just perk up a little bit. Use your imaginations because I want you to just visualize this with me as best you can, okay? Here's Jesus standing before Peter, James, and John, these three rough and tough fishermen. And all of a sudden, his outward appearance starts changing to reflect his true inward nature. Like before their very eyes, Jesus starts to morph and transform from the appearance of a human being into a heavenly one. His clothes become intensely white, so white that they put tied with bleach to shame. That's basically what Mark says in the text, right? And as he's standing before him, Jesus is literally radiating and emanating the very glory of God. He's not reflecting that glory as Moses did when he came off the mountain. You know, in in Moses' case, it was like someone shining a flashlight into a mirror. In Jesus' case, it was as if the very mirror itself was producing the light. Why is this true? Well, because as Hebrews 1.3 tells us, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He himself is the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus put that glory on display for Peter, James, and John in a way that no one had ever experienced it before. And so can't you just imagine them standing there, right, jaws on the ground, trying to take it all in. This is weird, but it's awesome. Like, what are we seeing? And then all of a sudden, as they're taking it all in, two visitors show up, Uh, namely the guys that we mentioned a moment ago, Moses and Elijah. And they show up out of nowhere. Are you guys getting the strangeness of this scene just yet? People are changing in form. People who weren't there are now here, okay? Um, Weird stuff's happening. But these two men show up for a simple reason. They're there to attest to the fact that Jesus is who he actually claimed to be. And we see that reality surface in two very unique ways, okay? First, again, some stuff to write down if you're taking notes. First, Moses and Elijah appearing together represent all the Old Testament scriptures, 
Okay, Moses represents the law. Uh, Elijah represents the prophets, both of which ultimately revealed Jesus. And this is something Jesus was very clear on when he spoke in Matthew 5, 17, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with this. Right? He says there, to the crowd of people listening, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. What he was saying was really simple. Look, I'm not here to change or to do away with the Old Testament scriptures. I'm here to do everything the law requires on behalf of sinful people who can't keep the law on their own. And at the same time, I'm here to do everything the prophets predicted about the Savior so that people will know and see that I am him. That's first. Secondly, according to Jewish tradition, Moses and Elijah appearing together was a sign of what's known as the end of the age. Okay, this was the time when the Savior or the Messiah would show up here on the earth and rescue and save his people. And that traditional belief is based on two passages that I want to show you. We'll throw them on the screens. Uh, the first is Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Pretty clear. And then Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. This is Jesus he's talking about. It is to him you shall listen. And so I imagine in this moment, Peter, James, and John, as they're kind of taking in what's happening before them, they are in their minds recalling those Old Testament passages and thinking to themselves, yep, we were right. That's him. That's the Savior. That's the Messiah. And we right now are witnessing the end. Right, he has come to establish his kingdom forever. He's about to crush our enemies and save us. It's going to be awesome. And Moses and Elijah are here as proof of that reality. Now, why am I so sure that they were thinking that? Well, I'm pretty confident that's what they were thinking because when I look at Peter's response, it kind of gives it away, right? Uh, this is comical to me, almost. I don't know if you ever read the Bible and laugh out loud, but that happened to me several times this past week as I was studying this. Uh, Mark says that in this moment, Peter... He actually speaks up. Even though the disciples are terrified and Peter doesn't know what to say, he speaks anyway, and he ends up saying something he shouldn't have. You ever been there? Yeah, you ever been in one of those situations where you felt like, man, something needs to be said, but you didn't know what to say, yet instead of keeping your mouth shut, you spoke, and as soon as those words left your mouth, you were like, no, please come back. <laughs> We've been there, right? This is where Peter was in the passage. He, he speaks true to form, like brain in off position. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Understatement of the century, right? Bro, of course it's good that you're here. And then he says, Jesus, let us make three tents or three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, without getting into the weeds on the different views of why he suggested this, one thing is crystal clear, and this is what we need to see. Peter's suggestion to prolong this preview was an attempt to turn the preview into a permanent situation. Are you tracking here with me? Yes. Uh, in other words, he wanted to prolong this mountaintop experience. And who can really blame, blame the poor guy? I mean, if you've ever had a, a, a physical, or I'm sorry, not a physical, but a figurative mountaintop experience with Jesus... Like, you get this, right? Maybe you were on a mission trip, on a camp, at some kind of retreat, 
and Jesus showed up in your life, the Spirit of God moved in your life in a way that you had rarely or maybe never experienced before, you know like I know that part of you wishes that moment could have gone on forever. Yes? But the problem in this scenario was simple. Prolonging this preview would have prevented Jesus from going to the cross. Peter wanted to build some shelter so that they could hang out up there forever together and just enjoy the moments and the scenery. But doing so would have prevented Jesus from accomplishing what he had predicted. And so whether Peter realized it or not, for the second time in two chapters, this guy is asking to see the glory of God's kingdom without first seeing the suffering and death of Jesus that needed to precede it. Mark says it was at this point that this cloud began to overshadow them. When you read this account in the book of Matthew, uh, you're actually told that Peter's still talking when this cloud starts to overshadow them. And this cloud showing up is highly significant. You see, in the Old Testament, God used a cloud as a vehicle of his presence. Right? It was where his glory dwelt. Uh, when his people were wandering around in the wilderness, it was how he led them during the day. Uh, a lot of times, God would speak to his people from the midst of the cloud, which is what he does here in our passage, right? This cloud falls on these men, and God the Father himself speaks to the disciples. He says, Peter, James, and John... This is my beloved son. Same words he spoke at Jesus' baptism. So he's confirming for them, first and foremost, their previous confession of Jesus. And then he says to these guys, listen to him. Peter, James, and John, listen to him. The idea there is one of obedience. It's not simply listen to what he says. It's, guys, you need to do what he's asking you to do. Now, parents in the room, you get this kind of language, don't you? I mean, how many times have you said to your kids in moments of instruction or discipline, I need you to listen to me. If your child is anything like my six-year-old, you said it a lot. Uh, so many times you are tired of, of hearing yourself say it. You don't ever want to say it again. But what, what are you saying when you say that? I need you to listen to me. You're telling your kid in those moments, I don't just need you to hear what I'm saying. I need you to do what I'm asking you to do. Look, that's what God was saying. Peter, James, and John. Uh, I love the fact that you have freely confessed what's true about my son, Jesus. So glad you recognize that he is who he claims to be. But guys, you can't stop there. You actually have to do what he's asked of you, which was what? Was what we talked about last week. So he stood in front of his guys and he reminded them, I'm about to head to Jerusalem to lay my life down. And if you want to follow me there, you need to deny yourselves Take up your crosses and keep following you regardless of what happens between now and then. My friends, this again is a great reminder that faith in Jesus and obedience to Jesus go hand in hand. Yes? These two things cannot be separated, which means that we cannot be those people who simply confess Jesus with our mouths and then deny him by our lives. Christianity is more than a matter of mere talk. If we are those people who confess Jesus to be who he claimed to be, we must also listen to him and do the very things he asks us to do. After that very clear instruction from God the Father, Mark says, preview over. Done. Like it ended as, as quickly as it began. Uh, paranormal became normal. The supernatural became natural. And Peter, James, and John were left standing there with Jesus alone. Now, I'm sure some of you, especially if you're not used to church, you're going, bro, that's weird. Like, what do I do with that? How does this apply to my life? Um, we're going to talk about that in just a moment, okay? In a few minutes, we're going to talk about us, and we're going to talk about what to do with all this. 
But before we get there, I need to take you to the passage again just briefly to show you what happens next. Because if you don't see what happens next, then you'll fail to truly understand how to best apply this passage to your life, all right? So go back with me one more time. Verse 9. Mark goes on, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until, until. So here's the first command of silence in the book of Mark with a time reference. Uh, Don't tell anybody about what you've seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So let me describe what we just read, all right? Uh, Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming off the mountain, and Jesus says, look, guys, don't tell anybody about the preview you just experienced, okay? Don't say anything to anyone about what you witnessed up there until I come back from the dead. Now, why in the world would he command that? Well, it's easy because neither they nor anybody else would truly understand all that they had just previewed until Jesus came back from the dead. Well, surprisingly, these guys kept quiet, even though they had no idea what Jesus meant when he said he was coming back from the dead. I mean, during this time, Jewish people believed in a general resurrection of the dead at the final judgment. But a special type of resurrection from the dead, like Jesus was talking about in his case, it was completely foreign to them. Yet, instead of asking Jesus about it, like, hey, bro, what, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about when you are, are, are saying that you're going to rise from the dead one day? They instead ask him about Elijah. And here's what they want to know. Why do the scribes, these were the teachers of the Old Testament law, by the way. Why do the scribes teach that Elijah must come first before the Messiah to restore all things? You see, apparently, Elijah's appearance coupled with all of Jesus' resurrection talk, had really, really confused him. They were probably thinking in this moment, um, okay, let's see, we just saw Elijah up there, and according to the Old Testament scriptures, that dude's supposed to come back before the Messiah comes back to restore all things, and when the Messiah comes back, he's supposed to fix all this, and so Jesus, help us here. Uh, he was just up there. We saw him. And if you're that Messiah who's come to rescue your people and restore the brokenness of this world, why do you still keep saying that you need to suffer and die? Seems like a fair question, doesn't it? Well, Jesus answers and he says back to them, oh, no, no, the scribes are right. Uh, Elijah does come first and he has come first and they did to him whatever they pleased. Jesus here, don't miss this. Jesus here is talking about John the Baptist. Who, in Luke 1.17, uh, it says of him that he came to prepare people for the coming of Jesus in the power and spirit of who? Say Elijah, and you'll be right. Okay, he came in the spirit of Elijah, right? And so Jesus is making the point. Fellas, you have to know the Old Testament prediction and prophecy about Elijah's coming was not literal in nature. Uh, it has been fulfilled in John the Baptist. Who, if you remember, way back in Mark chapter 6, had his head cut off for the sake of Jesus And so Jesus is saying here, look, guys, uh, Elijah, a.k.a. John the Baptist, has come and gone. And and the literal Elijah appearing on that mountaintop changes nothing about my need to suffer and die. And then he even says to them, don't you remember what the Old Testament scriptures say? I mean, you guys should know these. right? In places like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, the scriptures reveal that the Son of Man, me, must suffer and be rejected and be put to death. Now, look up here, if you will. I I need you to hear me. 
it was that reminder that made what these men just previewed that much more important. Because after a short time of what we just read, just a short time later, Jesus would be violently taken from these men, falsely accused, beaten, scourged, nailed to a cross, and left to die. And these men needed all the preparation they could get for when that time finally came. And so with that said, and with their preview in mind, the question now becomes, what do we do with it? Like, it's great that Peter, James, and John got to experience all that, but what does their experience mean for our experience today? Well, I think the answer is simple. Here's how I would answer the question, all right? And if you haven't really been leaning in so far, this is where you really need to lean in because I need you to hear this stuff, all right? I would say that even though you and I as people don't have literal, physical, mountaintop experiences with Jesus like these men had, Jesus still gives us previews of his glory today. Come on, let me just say that again. I need you to be with me. Jesus still gives us previews of his glory today. And those previews come through what I would call worship experiences. I mean, when you think about it, that's all that happened here in Mark 9, right? These men experienced worship. I mean, process it with me. What happened? They entered the very presence of God and they saw his glory, and they heard his voice, and they sensed his love and his care. And in doing so, they got a taste, just for a brief moment, of what their hearts truly longed for. That day when they would finally be with Jesus as their glorious king. Freed from all their struggles, all their enemies, all their hardships. Living together with him in perfect peace and joy forever. And at the same time, as I've said, that preview was, was meant to serve as preparation for the immediate pain and suffering, this hardship they would feel as Jesus went to the cross. And so in a way, it was a taste, but in a way, it was preparation. It was meant to help get these men through whatever life threw at them as they waited on their future king to become their reality. And I need you to hear me today. Those same things are still true for us. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. I've been working to get to this point the entire message. Here it is. Worship is a preview meant to prepare you for what's to come. Just write it down and we're going to unpack it. Worship is a preview meant to prepare you for what's to come. So when we come together in moments like this for corporate worship, to sing and to pray and to sit under the teaching of the word of God, or when we enter into worship privately, and we do it through prayer or reading and meditating upon the scriptures. Uh, maybe we even sing privately to God. For some of us, that's probably the only time we sing to God, right? It's privately because we don't think anybody sitting around us needs to hear us singing on Sundays. If that's you, I just want to say to you, uh, listen, sing out loud. Quit lit singing and just sing, okay? The Bible says make a joyful noise before the Lord. So even if you sound bad, you're at least biblical, all right? So... We're giving you permission to sing, but when you open or when you enter into these times of corporate and private worship, don't miss this. You do so not only to express the truths you believe. I mean, that's a big part of it, right? We come together to declare what we believe about our God and to thank him for what he's done for us through Jesus. But we also worship, here it is, to experience the truths that we believe. Are you with me? This is amazing to me, and I want you to just think about this. It blows me away. That right now, the living and resurrected Jesus, who is on his throne in heaven, invites broken, sinful people like us into real-time experiences with him. 
And then the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of us, if we know Jesus, uses those experiences to open up our eyes so that we can uh, see and preview his glory. And in those moments when we're sensing his presence and sensing his love and and hearing his voice and, and knowing his care in a personal way, we get for just brief moments taste of what life will one day be like when we're with him. And this is what's so amazing to me. The Holy Spirit is then able to take those previews and he uses them to prepare us for all the hardships and all the sufferings we're going to face in life as we wait on that future to become our reality. Now, look, here's what that means on a really practical level. It means that experience matters. It matters. And I know if you grew up in a faith tradition like I grew up in, that phrase might create some major tension in you. Like you're looking at this and go, oh, whoa, whoa, slow down, bro. Feels like we just stepped into some theological gray area here with all this experience talk. So let me make my case, okay? Uh, I grew up in a faith tradition uh, in which I often heard, especially as a teenager and college student, that I needed to be very careful, even skeptical of spiritual experiences. Because my experiences could lie to me. And if I bought their lies, I would be carried away both theologically and practically. Now, look at me. I agree with that to a point. Like, I agree that our spiritual experiences can carry us away if they are not rooted in the truth of God's word. But let me say to you as your pastor, I would never tell you in a million years to be careful of truth-informed experiences with God. Because we need, as the people of God, truth-informed experiences. They are vital to our relationship with him. I mean, have you guys ever read this book? Like, actually read it. Like, not just showing up on Sundays and listen to me tell you what to think about it. But have you actually got this out and read this book, not because you wanted to be intellectually and theologically smarter, but because you wanted to encounter the living God who inspired this book? Have you done that? If you have, here's what you know. That this book is full of story after story after story of person after person after person who had life-changing experiences with the living God. And I would argue today that you and I, similar to them, need those experiences. We need to experience his presence and glory. We need to, as Psalm 34, 8 says, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And why do we need that, church? Well, it's really simple because it's our experience that applies what we know in our heads to our hearts. And let me try to illustrate this, okay? Um, A a few weeks ago, I was with a buddy of mine, and he was telling me about the movie Dunkirk. He had just seen this movie, and I hadn't seen it yet. And so he was telling me about it, describing it, and he said, James, dude, one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. I actually walked out of the theater speechless, didn't talk for like 20 minutes. And so I left our conversation And I knew in my head, okay, Dunkirk is a good movie. And then a week later, I saw it. And I walked out of the theater, mesmerized, blown away, speechless even. Now, what happened in that week? Did I receive any new information about the movie? No, what happened? I simply experienced what I already knew to be true. And when I experienced it, my experience moved my heart in a special way. Listen, here's my point, and please don't miss this. It is one thing to know that something is true in your head. It is another thing entirely to experience its truthfulness. And the same thing applies when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. 
You see, you can be that person here today who is like greatest theologian in the room, uh, biblically informed. You can explain the gospel inside out, backwards, forwards, upside down, and know with your head that Jesus loves you, cares for you, is with you, is for you, gave his life for you. But some of you know this, like I know this. It's one thing to know all that stuff here. It's another thing to know it here. When you actually experience those truths for yourself in a very personal way, it changes everything. It changes everything. The Holy Spirit takes those experiences and he uses them to not only make you more sure of what you already know in your head to be true, but he also uses those experiences to carry you through this life because let's be honest, at times life beats us up and we need certain experiences to hold on to. And so in light of that, as we close, um, here's what I want to encourage us to do, okay? And I want to encourage us in this, not just today, but always, as Cross Point City Church. I want to encourage us to be proactive worshipers. Does it make sense, 1130 people? When I say proactive worshipers, if not, let me help you, okay? Um, Let's not be those people who only run to God when things get hard. Let's be those people who run to God long before things get hard. Yes? Let's be those people who show up on Sundays, not just to sit back and watch other people use their gifts in hopes that we might just like catch something from them. Let's not even be those people who show up and and decide to engage based on how we feel or what songs are being played. Oh, I hope the band plays that one song. I really like that one. If they play that one, I'll definitely raise my hands and sing loud. But if not, I'm just going to kind of keep it here, right? You know what I'm saying? We're all guilty of that at times. But what if we were those people who showed up every Sunday and regardless of circumstance or, or feeling, if we just showed up and went, you know what, I'm going to engage and I'm going to participate. My, my favorite show got canceled. Dog died this morning. Car broke down on the way to church. But I'm going to show up and worship the Lord, not just to express what I believe, but to experience it. This is who we have to be, remembering, look up here, remembering that Jesus wants to show us his glory. God of the universe wants to peel back our spiritual eyelids and show us who he is. He wants us to taste here on earth what eternity is going to be like. And then again, the Holy Spirit of God wants to sweep in behind those previews. And he wants to use, us, use them to strengthen us and to make us more confident along the way. And so right now in this moment, we're just going to practice that. We're going to practice proactive worship. Uh, the band, they're going to come and, and they're going to lead us in a song. We had a couple songs slated, but I've been preaching too long today. And so um, we still, hey, we have a one o'clock gathering today. So we got to get you guys out of the room in just a little bit for those other folks. But uh, we're going to just have them come and lead us in a song, okay? And here's the deal. Some of you, most of you, you, you may have never heard this song before because we've never sung it before here at Cross Point. But it was so fitting for the text and the message that we went, we got to share it with our church anyway. I mean, the song's called Transfiguration, for crying out loud. So it almost felt sinful not to play it, you know? And so we're going to play it. And I just want to invite you as it's being played. If you want to sing, that's fine. If you want to receive, that's fine. If you want to pray, that's fine. If you want to lift hands or hit your knees, like whatever the Lord leads you to do, I want you to respond accordingly. But we're going to pray before they come. And we're just going to ask the Lord, would you show us your glory? 
Holy Spirit of God, would you open our eyes to see Jesus today? And so right now where you're sitting, why don't you just stand on your feet and begin praying that over your own life? Just ask him right now, Jesus, Jesus, would you give me a preview of your glory today? Holy Spirit of God, right now, would you reach into my life in a special way and open the the eyes of my heart to see Jesus for who he is? Just tell him, God, I I don't want to just know what's true today. I want to experience it. I want to know your presence. I want to feel your touch. I want to hear your voice. God, I, I want to feel in this moment your love and your care for me. So God, would you help me to experience you? God, our our prayer is that in the next few moments you would pour out your presence in an undeniable way in this place. God, we don't want to miss you today. And so, God, let there be no denying that you were here with us. And, God, would you allow your Holy Spirit to sweep through this place in power. God, may he be free to rule and to reign and to change and transform, to do whatever he wants to do in our lives. God, we give this time to you. May it be a mountaintop experience for those of us in the room who desperately need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together.